Hi, welcome to State House Sound Bites, WITF's Pennsylvania politics podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. We're here in uh, Little Amps today, back in our usual home. It's August 4th. It's like 11.15 a.m. in case anything happens before we hear this. I don't think it will. Because the legislature's not here, so here to discuss other things with me for once is Brad Bumstead. Uh, with the caucus. Hi, Brad. Good to see you, Katie. Thanks for having me. And I always want to remind people what the caucus is, because I think most people who would listen to this podcast know what it is at this point, but it is sort of a hard thing to find if you're not in the know. So where can people read your work? Well, uh, they can buy it at a newsstand or they can subscribe at at caucuspa.com, a website. And it is basically a, a uh, weekly print publication that, f- that focuses on investigative reporting on state government. Mm-hmm. And so because you guys are doing so much investigative work, you're often, uh, when all of us are covering whatever nonsense happens with the budget, you're working on other stuff a lot of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I also spent the past 30 years doing oh, exactly. day-in budget stuff and sleeping in my car at night when they used to do all-night all sessions. So you're, you've earned your respite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, so Brad... Um, so the legislature's not here. We're waiting on the House to come up with a budget plan. So in the meantime, we're going to talk about some more fun stuff. Um, like, for instance, unions. You had a, uh, a great story this week in the caucus. If you guys want to pick it up and read that, you can. But in a nutshell, what was uh, your union-related story this week? Well, we came across an obscure state board called the Unemployment Compensation Board of Review. And what it is, it's a board that handles appeals from referees in workers' comp cases. And then they can be appealed from there to go to Commonwealth Court. But in any case, in looking through this for a recent story we did on on, um, uh, moonlighting and and jobs that, that lawmakers had... Um, it came to our attention that, that Rick Bloomingdale, the president of the AFL-CIO, surprisingly, was president of this board that handles the appeals on workers' comp. And I talked to a couple of lawmakers, and they were stunned by it. They had no idea. And if you go to the Labor and Industry webpage, you can get very little information about this board. You can't find out how many cases they handle. You can't get the board members' names or the salaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started looking into it, and it turns out that these three board members make at least 58000 a year. Uh, the chairman, Just from their work on the board. Yeah, right. And the chairman makes 59000 a year, which is far more than the average Pennsylvanian salary, which I think is 45000 And that's just a part-time job. He makes Bloomingdale makes 178000 a year uh, as the head of the largest labor federation in the state. Yeah, and I, so for context, so Rick Bloomingdale is a well-known person in Pennsylvania politics, especially in union circles. So give us some background on who Rick is. Yeah, he, he's, uh, since 2010, has been president. Prior to that, when he was first appointed to this uh, board, which looks like basically, um, you know, a nice uh, uh, little gig to have. Uh, he was secretary treasurer of the union, uh, which is a really powerful position, too, and is usually the heir apparent to this union. And uh, Mr. Bloomingdale was, was very upfront about all of this. Mm. And he said, look, I don't uh, have any conflict of interest here, though some people think he does, because uh, with the, the, the AFL-CIO, I don't negotiate the contracts. We just represent other unions. So, therefore, we're not dealing with the contracts that affects workers' wages and all that. That's true. But on the other hand, it's hard to for him, for anyone to imagine him being for employers. Well, right. And so you mentioned that could be a conflict of interest. Go yes. into that a little bit. Well, like, so what would the conflict be? 
be there? Well, it would be deciding uh, uh, cases of, of uh, people from the unions that are in the federation that he represents. Now, that on its face, that's a conflict. Now, he says, if I know the person involved, I recuse myself. I said, well, what about other union members? Uh, he said, no, no, I, I still decide those cases. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but anyway, when we talked to him after the press club, and you right, remember he was, was a speaker there. Yeah. there uh, he, we, I said, well, what kind of data is there? We haven't seen any to show how these decisions have gone. He goes, oh, I don't know. You know, I, I don't have any data, but I can tell you that last year uh, uh, employees won 65% of the cases. Well, okay, that's great. I said, where are the statistics? Back that up. He says, oh, you don't need statistics. I said, well, it'd be nice to have them, you know, to look at this. Uh, well, in reality, uh, our, our uh, one of our researchers uh, found later in the day uh, st statistics department uh, and looked through one year's worth of statistics and it showed just the opposite. It showed, really? Yeah, it did. It showed that uh, employers uh, uh, were winning 75% um, um, of the time. Yeah. And so what does that point to for you? Does that, do you draw any conclusion from that? Well, just that, that uh, it's, it's all part of the lack of information that's, that, that's out there about yeah. this. And, and uh, excuse me, I said, I'm stand corrected, uh, about 75% were won by em employees, not oh, employers. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, Mr. Bloomingdale, uh, you know, it has to be somewhat employee um, friendly and, and, and directed that way. The other two members, you don't, there are no real qualifications for this board. They are Senate confirmed. Uh, Bloomingdale was first appointed in 2003 by Governor Rendell, was reappointed. And here's the other aspect to it, too, is that Bloomingdale and another member of the board um, currently, um, their terms have expired. Bloomingdale has expired in 2015, but Governor Wolf is keeping him on. Um, uh, J.J. Abbott told us that he'll remain in that position until they find a replacement, whenever that is. Interesting. So where do you go from here on this story? Are you following up on it? Or are you we are, and we'll have a story in this coming week's edition that uh, uh, takes it to a different level and points out that the, the uh, House Republicans in particular, in particular who have been investigating workers' compensation reform are very interested in this board and what's happened with it. Okay, interesting. And I did want to bring up, because as you mentioned, Rick Bloomingdale was speaking to a, a group of reporters. It was the Pennsylvania Press Club dinner. And a lot of the, the talk that was coming out of that is something that I think we all know, but maybe a lot of people don't necessarily recognize as a growing trend, which is that unions are losing considerable power in Pennsylvania and around the country. Um, and so that's not necessarily, I mean, your investigation aside, I mean, what's, you know, what's the state of unions in Pennsylvania at this moment? Oh, it's declined significantly. Yeah. Um, the, uh, in fact, when I was talking to uh, Bloomingdale at one point, I mentioned your 900,000 member federation. He goes, well, it's more like 800,000 mm. now. And increasingly, um, um, you know, companies, uh, when they look at, at employment, you know, are more likely to uh, decide on right-to-work states where there are no unions, whether that's South Carolina or other places in the South. Uh, because it doesn't cost them as much money. And know. this is, I might get some details of the story wrong, but we just saw that recently. There's the, a factory in Erie, I believe, that had workers shifted away from it to Texas, which is a right-to-work state. Yes. And the reasoning for that it was, was that it was cheaper in Texas. They sure. could do it more cheaply. So we, we do see things like that We, we do, and, and I think, though, all the years that I've looked at the employment, employment moves, 
that is just one factor, and taxes are just one factor. Sometimes uh, schools and, and uh, the, the, the culture and the environment for workers there is as important sometimes as the taxes. Well, absolutely, and we should say a right-to-work state. I mean, <laughs> they're not unionized. I mean, the workers have less say in what they yeah. In the treatment they get. so that, That's true. Yeah. And Pennsylvania, I, we've been a, a traditionally strong union state. We have been a very strong union state, and, and there's no question about it. But but it has declined rapidly. I saw some figures years ago showing how much it's come down. But it used to be one of the forces in, yeah. in politics in this state, and it's no longer the case. And I want to just, like, this is sort of the... The key thing that I think is interesting about this that we got from uh, Rick Bloomingdale the other day is that for years, I mean, I'm sure as long as you've been really involved in Pennsylvania state government, which is a while, um, the unions have been very, very closely tied to the Democratic Party. Has that no ever, question about it. That's always been the case, pretty much, right? That's an exception. Right. You'll see some exceptions in southeastern Pennsylvania in the suburbs, where, uh, particularly uh, Delaware County, where you have some Republicans who are mm-hmm. pro-union. Yeah, and so this has been something that's been well-documented, and I'm sure anybody listening is aware of this to some extent. But, um, you know, we've seen political changes in the people who are belonging to unions or people who used to belong to unions, where they used to be straight blue-collar Democrats, essentially, We've had, you know, massive shifts towards voting for Donald Trump in the last election to the point where, and, you know, Rick Bloomingdale said this during his little speech the other day, that basically I mean, they're reconsidering their close ties with the Democratic Party to some extent. I mean, what does that say to you about where unions stand in Pennsylvania or what the changes that might be having to come down the pipeline? Well, I, I say, you know, good, good luck with that. I mean, to think that they would uh, suddenly be aligned with, with Republicans. Yeah, and that's not really what is, he was saying. Is, I know, but, but you know, I'm not sure that Republicans would want to be aligned, at least right now. No, it's true. Look, there have been exceptions to all of this. Uh, Erwin Specter, when he was a U.S. senator, had strong union ties. I was traveling with him one time and was surprised that we were, this, where are we going? It's, it's a Teamsters rally. You know, and and uh, uh, there, there are exceptions to that. There have been, uh, so they could probably make a few, find a few more friends out there who are Republican, which wouldn't hurt them. Look, you got a Republican-controlled House, stronger numbers than they've ever had in in recent years, and Republican-controlled Senate with strong numbers. Granted, there's a Democratic governor who can veto things, but it's hard to get anything through chambers like that if yeah. you're pro-union. Yeah. Um, all right. Well. I always like talking about unions, but I also want to talk about another major force in our state government, and that's lobbying. You also had a story this week about lobbyists that you said made some lobbyists kind of angry. Uh, what, what was the story, first off? What it was, and I wanted to do this for some time, and that's just take a look at who the most influential lobbyists are uh, in Harrisburg. And it's a difficult thing to put your finger on. You might have uh, some opinions on it. So this was by no means scientific, but what I did is I went out and interviewed uh, um, about a dozen uh, uh, former legislators, legislative staffers, some current legislators, and some lobbyists uh, that aren't with the big firms. And what I dealt with were the contract lobbying firms. And, and okay, uh, who are uh, the best firms among those? And the way I posed the question to people was, you're a CEO coming into Harrisburg, and you have unlimited resources. Money's no object whatsoever. Um, who are you going to hire? And probably the best answer I got out of that was from a Republican legislator who said, I'd hire Wojak. 
which has Democratic ties. I said, really? He said, sure. He says, because I'm coming in as a CEO. I'm going to have sympathetic uh, votes with some of the Republicans to begin with. You know, I'll get a lot of Republican votes, but I'll need Democratic votes and a Democratic governor, so I would go with a firm that has Democratic ties. Of course, that, that firm had been founded by a former House Appropriations Committee Chairman Stephen Wojak um, uh, from Philadelphia. Okay. So... Bojack, powerful. Um, what else, What were the other top ones that you found? Well, uh, Wojak uh, actually was, uh, you know, was was among the premier firms, but uh, the the, uh, the the ones that came out in the top tier uh, really were, were uh, Maverick Strategies, Long Nyquist. They're they're sitting right along the street here where we are. Um, uh, Greenleaf Partners uh, was another, and another one that's overlooked often is Buchanan and Ingersoll, a law firm. Uh, because they just have ex- enormous depth uh, among their, their lobbyists and can handle almost any issue. And they have support on the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle. They're very, very good. Also, a guy named, uh, well, well, just let's just say K&L Gates was also um, well thought of. Okay. And so, and I apologize for anybody who's listening and for whom this is sort of a, a basic information, but, you know, what... Lobbyists play an extensive role in state government and what laws get passed and what stuff gets traction and what doesn't. You know, how does that work? Well, I think that you'll see uh, among most lobbying firms uh, um, evidence of the revolving door and that, that people who run those firms or are employed as lobbyists are former legislative staffers. Or It's not just that, though, but former executive branch officials, top people who had been in the governor's office. Uh, for instance, at Wojak, we had mentioned, mentioned them, uh, Steve Crawford, who's now, since Wojak died, the, the head of the Wojak firm, uh, was Ed Rendell's chief of staff. Democratic governor from Philadelphia. So, um, and he's also a former uh, uh, staffer uh, in the legislature. So you see that all the time. So these people know the legislators real well, you know, and they know the senior people, they know the staffers up there, and that all of that helps. Uh, they will be the first to admit it gives them at least access. Mm-hmm. Whether it gives them votes is another question, but um, it does allow them to get in the door. Right. And I think we've heard often that Pennsylvania, our legislature's susceptible in particular to lobbying. And I think one of the reasons for that is we have um, lax gift regulations, things like that. Like, you know, how does no that... No limit on campaign finance, <laughs> none whatsoever. Exactly. Right. So, like, what are the factors that make Pennsylvania... I mean, would you agree that Pennsylvania is a particularly susceptible state to lobbying influences? Yes. Yes. And why is that? Well, for some of the reasons you just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the registration on, on lobbyists. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, after one year, a former member of the legislature um, uh, can lobby his own chamber under the rules. That, that's actually under the law. That's under the Ethics Act. And uh, no campaign finance limits. Uh, every lobbying firm can have a pack. And there are a couple lobbying firms that also do campaign work. So they're helping get the person elected, and then they're also uh, then turning around and lobbying them if they even need to. Mm-hmm. So we are, we have a lot of lobbyists who have a lot of power in the state. You mentioned former legislators can be lobbyists. Um, even former legislators who have, for instance, gone to jail, right? Right. There are several of those. Yes. And so, you know, have there been talks, like in the time that you've been here, have there been talks of reforming how much power lobbyists have in Harrisburg? 
Oh, sure, but but it's usually fleeting in yeah. nature. It doesn't go on very long. There there was a, a common cause. Common cause periodically um, had a lobbying reform on its agenda, and they, they would they would push things like expanding the the so-called cooling off period to two years, not one year, and other things. And, and the cooling just, off period for lawmakers who leave the assembly. Yeah. 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 Or, or staffers. Or, or staffers. Yeah. So I mean, it's 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 been a perennial issue, but it never goes anywhere. And I just ask uh, um, former director of Common Cause of Pennsylvania, Barry Kaufman, why is that? I said, why do these bills go nowhere? He said, self-interest. Self-interest. And uh, what would it take for these bills to go anywhere? Some large scandal, maybe? Because that's what we usually see, changes coming to the legislature on that level. Yeah, so far that hasn't worked. Um, uh, I mean, we had numerous scandals in the Pennsylvania legislature, bonus gate, computer gate, uh, all sorts of other things going on over the past 10 years, and it did not result in even a, 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 ca- even a cash gift ban being enacted into law. It's in the rules, but yeah. the, the, and, and other gift bans, yeah. <clears throat> like the governor has. I want to. I always like to reiterate what our gift laws are because, and we've done this in previous podcasts. So forgive me, but uh, it's just it is extremely lax. They don't have to report a gift of any amount unless what is it? It's like two hundred fifty dollars. Two hundred and fifty dollars or more. But right. even then, like, is there a mechanism in place to make sure people report gifts if no one's looking into it? Well, the Ethics Commission would enforce that, but they need <clears throat> a specific complaint yeah. to be able to act on it. And, um, you know, you could take um, five $249 gifts and never have to report them. Right. You know? So, then hospitality. I, I, the I, limit for that one is 650 Yeah, hospitality, yeah. food, and lodging. Right. So. And so the reporting is very, very lax. It's very thin. And lobbying firms uh, know that. Some take advantage of that and wine and dine people. Some don't. I mean, not, not all lobbyists are bad. Not all lobbyists sure. are, are yeah. greedy or dirty. They're really not. I know some very good people who are lobbyists. So People lobby for specific causes as well. Right. So that's one of the reasons that things get done and a right. lot of times. And we're talking here about the contract lobbyists, but every major institution in this, this town, whether yeah. it's PSEA or the... Township Supervisors Association has their own staff of lobbyists. Yeah, and that should be noted. That I think we talk about lobbyists like it's a bad word sometimes, and it's not. It isn't. It's just that sometimes people get very powerful. Right. Far from it. It's it's just that there there are there, there's a need to tighten up some of the regulations and restrictions on how lobbyists operate. Have you ever seen in your time in the legislature, a couple of decades, have you seen changes to like lobbying laws? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the Ethics Act has been enacted since I was here, and okay. it's well-intentioned. But one of the problems with it is, okay, you can't, under the law, go back and lobby your former chamber, if you say you're a legislator who lost a seat, for a year. Okay. But how does anybody know if you're standing up in the rotunda talking to another House member, let's say, or if that was your chamber, and you're talking, whether you're talking about fantasy football or, you know, a bill? Right. How do you know? You don't know. And, and uh, what constitutes a, a lobbying act? I mean, um, Barry Kaufman talks, for instance, about how um, a, a lobbyist could, during that one-year cooling-off period, um, uh, sit back with the other lobbyists and direct the campaign in the chamber and give them a battle plan. Here's what you do, and here's who you need to talk to. Here's where you get the votes. Is that lobbying? I think so. Yeah. 
but it's currently not even known you know, to the extent that it happens, um, uh, and it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. And so you do, I mean, I've seen you do a good amount of reporting on this. Anything you're looking at in the coming weeks related to lobbying? Uh, yes, uh, I think in the, the next week's edition, we will look at the, the, some of these issues like the cooling off period. Yeah, very cool. Well, read the caucus. Um, and we're about 20 minutes in right now. Brad, anything else that you're that's on your radar right now? If it's a secret, you don't have to tell us. But No, it's just a matter of interest, and I don't know. I, I wish my colleague Paula Knudsen were here, who's a, 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 an attorney. Yes. But I, I'm very interested in the, the differences between some of the criminal um, uh, corruption cases we've seen, and that is the the U.S. Supreme Court had decided and threw out a case against the Virginia governor um, for taking various gifts, and it it held basically, as I understand it, there was no quid pro quo. Mm. But then we've seen other cases where, you know, people in Pennsylvania have been charged, you know, since then. The Philadelphia district attorney um, uh, was charged for taking all these... um, uh, uh, gifts right. from defense attorneys and others, and you know the Justice Department indicted him on that. Um, uh, governor Tom Corbett, when when you, you remember, was governor, took a lot of gifts from different people and reported them as he's required. Didn't break any laws, uh, but he, he gathered a lot of gifts. Why is that legal? I know it's, it has to do with the limits and everything, right. and, uh, and some of the others aren't. And, and you know, how will that uh, Virginia case affect? prosecutions, including the, the, the Allentown mayor, who was recently just uh, indicted for a pay-to-play scheme. Okay, interesting. So, I don't know any of the answers to that. So you do think the Virginia case will have an impact, though? I think it already has, I think in terms of how careful they are about bringing charges, you know, okay. but, and looking at, you know, maybe other charges that are involved in it than just bribery per se because sometimes it's not just bribery you know it's 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 uh, you know corrupt influences and it's taking advantage of one's position in the office interesting so. all right well i think that just about does it but uh we'll be back next week with maybe more budget stuff i feel like they're not going to be back this month I don't think so. uh, that's my theory it's a good theory. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, oh, I did, I did want to mention, we just uh, this is just news that we got yesterday. The Treasury extended a line of credit to mm-hmm. the General Assembly, or to the, to the state, I suppose, to prop up its, uh, it, to prop it up right. for sure. the time being, to keep money in the general fund. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this being an unprecedented situation, but, I mean, We've seen this. We saw this last year. We've seen this in previous years. What's your, you know, what's, what are the implications of that from your perspective? Well, I'm hard-pressed to see that it's, that it's unprecedented, um, you know, but it is unusual this early in yeah. on, uh, the, uh, on the budget to do it. And I don't quite understand it because, as I understood it, they're $2 billion short for a $32 billion budget, correct? Yes. All right. So, in the meantime, tax money is coming in. And if you'll remember in 2015... When we didn't have a budget, uh, Governor Wolf was able to spend all sorts of money. Now, that's granted, there was no budget, and the only thing he couldn't give it to were people who had contracts like nonprofits, but they could spend all this other money. Now we actually have a budget, and there's revenue coming in every month, uh, so I don't understand why we're short already. Usually you run out, if you're $2 billion short of $32 billion, you know, sometime in March or April of next year. Yeah. So I don't understand that. That's something I'm trying to figure out today. So I guess stay Good luck tuned. With that. <laughs> yeah. I know.
stay tuned for maybe some reporting on that. Um, all right, I think that it does it. Brad, okay. thank you for coming thank, in. Thank you for having me. All right, we will be back next week. Bye-bye.